Let's uh, read again the, the words that we'll be focusing on this evening from Colossians chapter 3, reading from verse 5 of the chapter. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Amen. Well, we've been uh, entitling this uh, series on Colossians, uh, One Lord to Rule Them All, because it seems to me that uh, the focus of Colossians is the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is, Paul has proclaimed, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, and the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus is not only the saviour who gets us into heaven. Uh, To become a Christian is not, as it were, to receive from him uh, a get-out-of-jail card and to continue round the board, leaving him behind. Jesus continues as uh, the one who exercises his reign over our lives through his gospel. We're going to see in the chapter how his rule takes effect over our lives uh, in different uh, moral and ethical areas. Later on in chapter 3, slaves will be reminded that their faith makes a difference to their attitude at work because it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And similarly, masters are reminded that you also have a master in heaven. Jesus is Lord. Now the question that arises is, what does that mean then to have Jesus as Lord over our lives? Is this some kind of form of slavery or captivity? One of the, one of the things that most resonates with uh, our own generation, with the modern era, is the, the privilege of freedom. Uh, it's interesting just to, to make an inventory of, of modern uh, pop songs and to note how often the concept of freedom uh, is sung about. Uh, and the idea of freedom is, is something that everybody wants to buy into, no matter what cause it is they're promoting. For example, the pro-abortion lobby will describe its campaign in terms of freedom to choose. And the uh, lobbyists for gay marriage present it as uh, an equality issue or alternatively as a freedom to marry as everyone else does. Uh, Everyone wants to buy into the idea of freedom. 
And freedom is, true freedom is at the heart of the gospel. Paul tells the Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. We have been uh, given freedom as Christians. But we saw last time that there are dangers to our freedom. Um, We quoted Tertullian's uh, picture of the two thieves of the gospel. That just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel of justification by faith is always threatened by two thieves on either side. On one side, uh, there is the the non-religious way. The libertine, the, the one who will throw away all restraint and who has no need for a saviour. But there is also a thief that will rob us of justification by faith, which is the legalist who will try by his own rule keeping to bypass Jesus as a saviour. And Paul's going to show us in Colossians 3 that having Jesus as your Lord actually means true freedom. It's a paradox. To know Jesus as master is actually to know true freedom. And Jesus spoke in these paradoxical terms when he invited people to come under his lordship. When a a Jewish rabbi had people come to him for tuition, the, the term that was used was that they took his yoke, they came under the yoke of the rabbi, and Jesus says, come to me and take my yoke on you and learn of me, because my yoke is very, very different. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a lordship of a very distinctive character. Jesus' lordship is true freedom. And we're going to look at this section which may on the surface not strike you as speaking about freedom. But I believe it does. And I want us to look at it in terms of how Jesus tells us that as his followers we have first of all Freedom to change. We have freedom to change. Secondly, he tells us that we have freedom from the wrath of God. And thirdly, he speaks of freedom from prejudice within the new family of God. Freedom to change. Freedom from the wrath of God. Freedom from prejudice. Freedom to change then. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. We are free to change through the gospel. One of the features of any discussion about morality or behavior in our day is that people out with the Christian community largely believe that a lot of what we do is determined. It's determined by our genes. Jesus, just to take one example of how this works out, Jesus warned uh, in the Sermon on the Mount against the, the lustful look. He said that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has actually committed adultery in his heart. Well, I came across an article in a newspaper last week uh, reporting Uh, in a very popular way, some research that had been uh, written up in, of all things, the Journal of Sexual Behaviour, and it used the term uh, ogling. And its conclusion was, men ogling at women, which is simply another way of 
the lust, speaking of the lust for Luke, is explainable by evolution because early man stood in a better chance of reproducing if he slept with many partners. So the researchers explained. It's in our genes. That's the way we evolved. It's all determined. Uh, it's the same with the, the way that homosexual behavior was, was justified for a time. There was the idea that there was a gay gene out there. There was this search for the gay gene, which proved in the end to be a, a blind alley. But nevertheless, the, the, the message that it's a lifestyle for which people have uh, no choice over is one that's largely accepted. It's determined. James Boyce, the late James Boyce, uh, in one of his books, uh, relates uh, a Newsweek article from 1982, uh, which was accompanied by a picture of a baboon, presumably killing an infant baboon. And the headline was, Biologists say infanticide is as normal as a sex drive and that most animals, including man, practice it. And the implication of the article was, man is an animal, other animals kill their young, therefore it's all right for humans to kill their young also. And you could go on and on. This is the way that we are made. This is our genetic makeup. And therefore, we're off the hook. We can't help it. It's the way we're built. But the flip side of that is that if your behavior is determined, you can't change. And in his desire to be free, modern man has actually found himself a captive of his genes. And the gospel tells us, on the contrary, that we are freed by Christ to change. Our freedom from negative lifestyles, from destructive lifestyles, comes from the work of the Holy Spirit who unites us to Jesus and frees us for change. Now in verse 5, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature. And the term that he's using, put to death, uh, was often in the past used, uh, the, the expression mortifying the flesh was, was the term used for it. Uh, that can give the wrong idea because it conveys, perhaps, uh, in our minds the idea of someone uh, beating his body or going and living in a cave in the desert, uh, subsisting on meal and water, uh, trying to be hard on himself. And that would be a, a wrong idea to connect with because it's not our physical bodies itself that are the problem. But it's the, the, sin, the sinful instincts that uh, are associated with our bodies and our appetites that have to be disciplined. When Paul uh, speaks of the flesh in a negative way, he's speaking of our bodies as dominated by sin, as ruled by sin. And it's these sinful instincts that have to be put to death or mortified. In other words... We have to have some radical action to cut off at the source some of these sinful desires which would make havoc of our Christian lives. Jesus said the same thing. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. 
deny these things the oxygen they need for survival. Now, it's clear, isn't it, that that kind of action, this working uh, with the Holy Spirit who is now in our lives, working in this way is opening up the ground to the legalist, the kind of person who loves to make holiness a matter of rules. And Paul is pressing home to us in this chapter that we are only going to be increasingly holy if we understand that growth in holiness comes from understanding that we're united to Jesus. That's the foundation for holiness, not rules and regulations. But there were people in Colossae who were saying, if you want to become a spiritual person, these are the rules and regulations. And Paul comes in hard on these things. They were recommending abstaining from certain foods. They were observing uh, parts of the Jewish ceremonial law. They had mystical practices, including maybe the worship of angels as part of the package. And it was all so misleading because uh, you just become a Pharisee that way. You undermine the gospel and you quickly become an embittered and rather sad person, but you don't grow in holiness. Uh, the classic book, I think, in, in uh, Christian literature on this subject is John Owen's book on the mortification of sin. And the, the book is based on some sermons which seemingly Owen originally preached to uh, teenage boys. And Owen says in the book, and he warns of the danger of a wrong foundation in putting sin to death, uh, on basing on rule-keeping. Putting sin to death or mortification from a self-strength carried on by way of self-invention unto the end of self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. Hard-hitting words. And Paul is as adamant in attacking the rules and regulations of the false teachers at Colossae. He says of them, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Rules and regulations won't make us holy. What will make us holy? Paul says it's as we understand our union with Jesus by faith. A union brought about by the Holy Spirit. It's the old uh, instruction that we find in nearly all the epistles. This is what you are in Christ. Now be what you are. Now live it in. Live it, live it out. Faith has joined us to Jesus at every stage of his experience. Notice in the beginning of the chapter, Paul says, since you've been raised with Christ, think about those things that are heavenly. Don't be earthly in your thinking. But now his focus is more on the fact that we've been joined to Jesus in his crucifixion. And there's been a death to sin because we've been joined to Christ in his crucifixion. Uh, earlier in chapter 2, Paul speaks about crucifixion in terms of a circumcision. 
Jesus was cut off on the cross. It was a kind of circumcision for him. We have been circumcised by our union with Jesus on the cross. The old life was cut off because we were joined with Jesus in his cross work. And so our true identity is no longer as people who are ruled by sin. We die to sin when we believed in Jesus. Therefore, Paul's argument is, let us live true to the reality of our new life in Jesus. And so, in practice, this means that as Christians, in whose lives the Holy Spirit is at work, who are joined to Christ, we have power to change. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us and enables us to be more and more conformed to the truth of our identity in Christ. Okay, so it doesn't happen as we lie in our beds asleep. Uh, There is no uh, wand that is waved over us so that it happens without any of our own exertion. It involves us being utterly honest and absolutely ruthless in cutting off the oxygen supply to each besetting sin in our lives. Now every one of us is different, which is a great blessing, isn't it? We're all different. Nobody's like me and nobody's like you. We're all different and equally we have different besetting sins. And what is troublesome to one person will not be such a big deal in somebody else's life, but there will be another pattern of temptation. But there are two generalized battlegrounds that Paul covers in these verses. One of them is in our private lives, the thoughts and actions that we keep hidden. And Paul lists uh, some of the, the temptations to sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, it is interesting that that Paul begins his list uh, with sexual sin, because the fact of the matter is that sexual sin uh, is such a powerful and dangerous area for Christians, and it is so easy for Christians to live double lives, either not to acknowledge it to themselves even, and to keep up a pretense before other people. The, the first of the, the sexual sins is, is uh, sexual immorality or pornea, the, the, any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. And it is remarkable how many, even in Christian ministry, will acknowledge that this is the battlefield in their own lives. Young Christian men who are frank and candid with others will acknowledge this battleground being uh, where they feel most vulnerable. And the casualty statistics bear it out. This is where Satan most frequently trains his artillery. And no matter how shamed we may be to acknowledge that as a reality in our lives, it's vital to acknowledge it and to nail it to the cross. All Actual acts of immorality arise from inner sin. And so impurity includes thoughts and speech that's smutty or unchaste. Behavior that's sexually suggestive. Lust uh, 
is shameful passion, evil desires, longings which are contrary to God's way. And Paul says these have to be killed dead. If lust is left, lust or disorder, desire is left unchecked, it will grow like a many-headed monster. And then uh, the, the surprise, if you like, in the list is greed, which is immorality. Greed, which is idolatry, rather. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that the, the pattern of sin can vary. And there will be some for whom greed uh, is the, the key battleground. Beware, Paul says, of wanting more and more of the world's goods. Some who think that they are less prone to sexual passion, who think they are safe, may well be vulnerable to this covetousness. And Paul is saying it's, it's idolatry because it puts the self before God. William Hendrickson comments here, he says, every sin is basically selfishness, the worship of self instead of the worship of God, the substitution of self for Christ in one's affections. So there's the first battleground, which is our private life, that which no one else sees, that which we can, we can hide most readily from others, the double life of sin. The second battleground is our more ordinary, everyday life. Uh, it is the you that your wife or husband or children or neighbor or friends at work see. Put to death, Paul says, the more visible sins that those around you uh, are aware of. Anger, verse 8, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. It's a terrible fact, isn't it, that sometimes we can feel, uh, we can justify losing the plot simply because we're in the family and it's those who are most hurt who are nearest to us. Malice is that the, the very unattractive spirit that rejoices at the mishaps of others, people of whom we are perhaps jealous and Paul says also, any hint of smuttiness in our conversation and any possibility of untruthfulness, they're completely out of place in the Christian lifestyle. They must be systematically done away with. And Paul speaks about this doing away with very colourfully. He's speaking, first of all, in terms of put them to death. Put them to death, nail them down, nail them to the cross asphyxiate them. Don't let them have the oxygen that they need. But then he uses another illustration and that's of the, the garment. And it's a case of taking off one coat and putting on another. And the, the picture is this, that you're, you're perhaps uh, walking around and you're, you have a, a light coloured jacket and someone points out to you or you suddenly notice that there's this horrible smear on your jacket and you recoil in embarrassment that it should be discovered. You take off the coat and you put on another clean jacket. Paul is saying that's, that should be our attitude towards uh, sin. It belongs to the old person. We have been united with Christ now. We have put on the new self, the new nature, which is 
a result of being in Christ. Now notice one or two kind of obvious common sense things about the list. It's, it's a list, isn't it? A list of specifics. list of specifics. And the reality is that we, we, don't, we don't see victory in our Christian lives unless we are specific with sin. If we talk in generalities all the time, we will make no progress. Paul says, don't be deluded by, by having your, your zeal for holiness evaporate in generalizations. Be specific about the things which are problems. And put them to death. I have a friend uh, in the ministry. And uh, he shared once that it's his practice. uh, To try uh, in the middle of the day. Lunchtime. To spend some time. uh, Reviewing a list of what he understands. As his besetting sins. And to ask the Lord. Just as to how he, uh, he is doing. In terms of putting these to death. Praying over them. So there's, there's a realism there, isn't there, about making progress. Paul says, put them to death. Ask God to give you a self-awareness of what these besetting sins are. Ask him to give you a faithful friend who will point them out, who will keep you accountable to uh, leaving them behind. And remember that the temptations to which we are prone will vary according to our stage of life. The sins that we confront in youth may not seem as troublesome in middle age or old age, but there will be different sins to contend with. And we need to make sure that that the sin that we address is actually dead, that it has been clobbered, it's been nailed to the cross, rather than simply being diverted. Because that can happen sometimes. We, We leave behind some particular sin, some area of temptation, because we're afraid of being found out and divert to something, some practice perhaps, where we feel more secure. Paul says, deal with these things radically. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. The farmer has got a a whole lot of documents in his field. He knows that there's no point in taking the topper out and and, uh, Knocking all the tops of these documents because they'll simply come up again. You have to deal with the root, that deep tap root that goes so deep into the ground. Get chemical into it to kill it dead. Paul's saying we have to do that with sin. It's, what below, what, it's what's below the surface, that which no one else sees but God. That is most deadly. But friends, Jesus rules. Jesus rules. In our life. His lordship means that we are free to change. Praise God. We are not what we once were. We are not what we wish we were. We are not what we we will be one day. But we are not what we once were. We have been freed by the Holy Spirit for change. We're going to deal with the next two points much more briefly. But secondly, Jesus' rule in our lives means that we're free from God's wrath. It's a sober verse, isn't it? In verse 6, Paul says, because of these, because of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. People don't like to think about God being wrathful. 
They're okay with God being love, of course, but not with God having anger. And yet, as we know, love and, and wrath are not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive in the Old or the New Testament. Uh, for the, the prophets to come and proclaim the mercy of God, uh, they proclaimed, first of all, his wrath and judgment. Jesus uh, did the same. A holy God doesn't stand by idly when those he has created spurn his law, they trash his law, disregard him as the creator. He will be angry with them. And God's wrath is personal. Uh, it's his holy, his fixed, his passionate opposition to all rejection of his will and his determination to punish that rebellion. And it is certain, his wrath is certain. For everyone who opposes God, the wrath of God is coming. Sin draws down the wrath of God. It's like a steeple on a high hill which will draw down lightning upon itself. God says in Deuteronomy 32, 35, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. Sin is the grease which will cause the foot to slip into this pit of judgment. But as Christians, under the blood, we are freed from the wrath of God. The gospel of Jesus takes us to Jerusalem and to a day when the sun refused to shine for shame. And when the wrath bearer cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when the people went away, wailing and beating their breasts, he took the wrath upon himself. Praise God. The Lordship of Jesus frees us from the wrath of God. And then finally, the Lordship of Jesus frees us from all human forms of prejudice. Verse 11 speaks of the new community where here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul's listing off the, the various categories of people that would be found in a place like the, the Lycus Valley where Colossae uh, was situated and where the, these Christians lived out their lives. There were Greeks and Jews. Uh, it's simply a way of dividing up the world. There were Jews and there were Greeks. The Greeks are the, the, the best representatives of the Gentile world. And the Greeks were, were properly proud of their rich heritage of philosophy and culture and of the fact that they had one of the, the greatest empires ever to have uh, ruled in the world. The Jews on their side prided themselves on being the, the chosen people, God's own people, have, having had the, the revelation of God, the covenant, the law, and so on. The same distinction is described in terms of circumcised, uncircumcised, circumcision, the covenant signs that uh, made Jews different, that reminded them of God's dealings with them. And then there were the barbarians, barbarians, uh, the the, the Romans looked down upon the barbarians because of their unintelligible tongues. These northern tribes, 
Their, their language sounded to uh, the Romans like bar, 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 bar. So they called them the barbarians. And amongst the barbarians, the Scythians uh, were amongst the lowest. They were a group of tribes around the Black Sea. And from the Scythians was drawn one of the, the lowest forms of slaves. They were violent, uneducated, uncivilized. They were considered completely inferior. It's so true to life, isn't it, that even slaves should have uh, others to look down upon within their own uh, grouping. And in the church, Paul says that Jesus is all and in all. Jesus is all that matters. And he is in all in the sense that he is the one who indwells every member of this community. Now is that not absolutely wonderful? Jesus is all that matters. Jesus is all that matters. I have a bundle of sins that have been forgiven. So do you. And I need to put to death a load of sins in my life and you need to do the same with a different collection of sins in your life. And Jesus is my only hope. And Jesus is your only hope. He is all in all. Because the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. He's our only hope. He is the one who can meet us. None of us can do it on our own. But we are being changed as we grow in the knowledge of God, renewed in knowledge, in the image of our Creator. And what a difference that is to the world around us, because the world around us is so particular of its divisions, and it divides us up into classes, whether we're middle class or working class. And there's the old school tie system, where uh, preference is given to people who've been at one school or the other. And there are the different uh, Race barriers and other barriers which define people as being in the tribe or outside the tribe. The car you drive, the clothes you wear, the team you support. All of these things. And the Bible tells us that in Christ they're all totally irrelevant. All totally irrelevant. Because there is no ex-druggy and no celebrity. No blue or green. No working class or middle class. But Christ is all. He's our only hope. He's all in all to us. And no one may look down on the other. For all are one in Christ Jesus. Free to change. Free from the wrath. Free from prejudice. All because of the blessed yoke of Jesus. His blessed Lordship. Let's pray together. Our Father we thank you for your word to us. We know that the world boasts often of its freedom. And yet how hollow that boast is. And we have found in you true freedom. And we have proved that your yoke is indeed easy and your burden light. Lord we pray. That you would lead us on to greater and fuller and gladder obedience as we seek 
more and more to put to death those things in our lives which belong to the earthly nature, the old person, and renew as we pray more and more, day by day, into the image of our blessed Saviour. In Jesus' name we pray.